Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find the exceptional people in their fields, not just the -the run-of-the-mill people that have been licensed, but the ones that really go above and beyond and are, you know, what I call the the geniuses of their field. So I have Dr. Sharif Hassan. I think he definitely qualifies. He's an international physician from Washington, D.C., with a focus on precision medicine. Uh, means he incorporates integrative medicine with genomic mapping, uh, traditional as well as nutritional and lifestyle management. It's geared to the individual patient. So um, he's also a keynote speaker, and uh, we're going to go into uh, his approach to sleep medicine. So, Sharif, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Jacob. Yeah, tell me about your uh, your work in sleep. Um, what what first got you interested in it? Well, actually, I am trained as a critical care physician from the UK. I used to work in uh, Hartford transplant unit up in Newcastle upon Tyne before I moved over to the U.S. So uh, I have been working in intensive care unit, managing patients pre and post transplant on ventilators. So I'm quite familiar with uh, assisted uh, respiration. And once I came here to the U.S., uh, because of that, uh, I had an interest in working with uh, sleep medicine and sleep disorder. Okay. What, what kind of uh, sleep disorders particularly fascinate you? Uh, actually, uh, the most common one is uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So I do a lot of studies in that uh, my office. But my interest goes beyond that. I meant uh, I don't stop at treating the patient with sleep apnea, and that's it. It's very important to follow up because sleep apnea and in specific and in general sleep disorders affect the whole body, uh, especially when it comes to the cardiovascular system. And the interest here in that uh, cardiovascular disease is the most prevalent and yet the most preventable non-communicable disorder. So there is a lot of interaction here between the uh, sleep or the brain and mind and the heart. So that uh, is the main focus on my work and my interest in sleep medicine. So within the world of obstructive sleep apnea, some people are doing like airway evaluations to see the shape and, you know, the airway. Um, I mean, you know, there's, of course, CPAP, there's oral appliances. I mean, where are you finding your niche? What's, what's some of the new or unusual things you're investigating within the world of sleep apnea? I'm very interested in following up of patients after they had the corrective measures, whether by CPAP uh, or BiPAP machines or a dental appliance. Because so far, it's very poorly understood the outcomes after they get treated in the sense that if they regain the weight, what is going to be their morbidity or mortality ratio? It's very poorly understood how much of hypertension or disorders of the blood pressure they would regain after treating sleep apnea if they gain uh, the weight again. It has been established by studies that uh, um, 
meta-inference and the metabolic products of uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline are still there in the urine after getting the patients on CPAP and BiPAP machine, especially if uh, they get told, oh, everything is fine, you have no problems now, and uh, they ignore or disregard the symptoms coming on or creeping on again very slowly, especially with the snoring. Because what happens usually uh, with uh, very mild sleep disorders in the form of uh, the ones that uh, do not need sleep uh, uh, assisted uh, device like a CPAP or so, they get told, oh, they got uh, to open up their airway uh, they got to use some sort of expanders on the nose to open up uh, their nears so that they breathe properly. But indeed, that snoring can progress to a lower HEI. Snoring can progress to what? If not properly diagnosed early on, they can think of the snoring as just being snore, near snoring without another element of sleep apnea while having a lower AHI. Oh, AHI is the apnea hypopnea Hypoxia index. So, index, correct. Okay, so is snoring itself a hypopnea or is snoring just snoring? And, and what is a hypopnea versus an apnea? Apnea is like complete cessation of breath, but you know, yeah, what, for what is hypopnea? Seconds, but hypopnea is just basically a lower threshold of breathing which results in hypoxia and drop of the oxygen concentration in the blood. Okay, so hypopnea is just, uh, I guess, restricted breathing and snoring probably classifies as, uh, is, is snoring a low-grade hypopnea? Does it cause that? You know, what's the interface it, there? It can be associated with low-grade hypopnea. Okay, I see what you mean. So, and again, it can be positional or non-positional. Oh, meaning uh, if you sleep on your back, you snore, exactly. but on your side, you don't. Or same Versus with apnea. The side, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I have definitely positional apnea and snoring too. But yeah, okay. So I know what you mean. Like for me, if I'm on my back, it's bad. If I'm on my side, it's okay. Okay, gotcha. So, all right. What What are you trying to figure out then? You're saying that people that snore. Um, has anyone studied the progression of snoring? Like, do you characterize the volume of the snore, the frequency of the snore, the roughness of the snore? Like, has anyone looked at that? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. Uh, but the very interesting being done recently is uh, actually correlating sleep disorders, particularly sleep apnea, to the heart and what happens there, especially now with the evolution of genomic medicine and how that is linked all together. It's fascinating, actually, to have a deeper look into that. Okay, well, let's focus there. So what, what have you discovered so far? I mean, when you have an apnea, obviously the, the heart is affected. What does the heart do? Does it accelerate, beat faster, trying to circulate blood uh, to get oxygen? I mean, what, what does it do? Well, uh, the, the, the very interesting thing is that it has been noted that there is a circadian oscillation in the heart cell. Uh, like 10, about 10% of the heart genes oscillate in a time of day dependent pattern or a manner depending on their wake-sleep cycle. And that affects the heart contractility. It's in turn affects the blood pressure and the variability of the heart rate, especially during sleep, whereby people who've got a disturbed sleeping pattern, they tend to have lesser dip in their blood pressure and heart rate during sleep, which affects their mortality actually in the long term. Well, okay, so what happens to the heart? Does it contract harder during the apnea or 
after you've had apnea for a period of time, does the heart change and does it contract harder normally or not as hard? It contracts hard initially as a normal compensatory mechanism, but in the longer term, the heart muscle hypertrophy, it it becomes thickened and eventually it results to weakening of the heart muscle and heart failure. Oh, okay. So apnea at first will cause the heart to contract harder and that will pump up the heart muscle, will build it up and make hypertrophy. Sorry, I couldn't say the word. And then hypertrophy, why does that weaken the muscle? Isn't hypertrophy a sign that the muscle has gotten stronger or just bigger? Does it change the morphology of the heart where it's it's harder to pump the blood for some reason because you have this fatter muscle? Yes, exactly. Here is what happens. I meant the muscles increase in the heart the heart muscles increase in size and in number, but it outgrows the blood supply to it. That's why it becomes weaker. So you have an excess oh. of non functioning or properly functioning uh, muscle cells. That's interesting. I wonder I wonder how preferential the heart is to itself. You know, if it feels like it's not getting enough blood, does the heart say, well, you know, I'm number one, I want this blood, so maybe it pumps harder to try to get more blood to itself? Or does it, uh, I mean, does it seem to have any allegiance to itself? Or, you know, is it just working in concert with the rest of the body? Or is that like a, you know, a heart uh, researcher question? Yeah, it has a preference to itself because uh, remember when we were sleeping, the whole body is resting, uh, except relatively for the heart muscle, I meant when you're awake, your heart rate is 70, but when you go to sleep, it's 55. But uh, uh, the skeletal muscles, as an example, hardly work there. <laughs> so definitely the heart has a preference uh, to bring uh, blood supply and oxygen to itself. And it's interesting that the heart muscles regenerate by a ratio or a percentage of about 0.5 to 5% per year. And this is good news because it shows uh, that to a large extent, the pathological changes or the negative changes that happen there are reversible if we follow the proper treatment and lifestyle changes as well. What about the interplay between fat around the heart or, you know, through the heart and hypertrophy? Like, you know, the people that have fat deposits in their heart, um, does that increase hypertrophy? Does it, how does it interact with it? And, how does it interact with the heart function as well? Do you look at that? When we say hypertrophy, we mean the lean heart muscle itself. But the fat around it can be affected by other disease. Among them is hypothyroidism, as an example, or amyloid disease. Uh, if you mean fatty degeneration of uh, the muscle, that happens in very, very, very late stages uh, of heart failure. Oh, so do people, for the most part, not have fat deposits around their heart? Their hearts are uh, pretty lean, or no? Yes, uh, it doesn't happen except in very late stages of heart failure for it to be observed macroscopically or on looking okay. on it with the naked eye, not under the microscope. But again, okay, yeah. you know... Okay, got it. Yeah. Well, the reason I was asking is if, if it could be observed, then maybe there would be an interplay, you know? People with apnea that have fatty hearts, or is people with apnea that don't have fatty hearts? But it sounds like it doesn't uh, doesn't you know correlate right now. So that's why. Exactly. Yeah, the, the 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 interesting correlation is actually uh, about the weight changes that happen uh, in correlation with sleep apnea and cardiovascular changes. I mean, the incidence or prevalence of heart disease, then the high blood pressure, coronary artery disease. 
and peripheral vascular disease too. This is much more well established. So, so the heart regenerates a little bit each year, which is good. Um, again, apnea appears to cause this hypertrophy, and then it, the heart essentially like starves itself in some part, so it can't contract as hard. So, what happens then? Like, what does the progression do to people? When it doesn't contract as hard and not able to uh, supply the body systems with enough blood, and that leads to upsetting the whole body systems. Uh, I meant uh, uh, there is increased in the sympathetic nervous activity. There is uh, uh, increased inflammation in the body. There is increased oxidative stress. There is metabolic dysfunction with more insulin resistance. There is more hypercoagulability of the blood, more endothelial damage, more atherosclerosis, more heart arrhythmias, and onset of sudden or unexplained death here. All right. So what, uh, are you looking at it from an intervention standpoint or just a observational, like, this is what happens standpoint? Like, what's your end goal here? No, I'm looking at it from an observational point of view. Okay. But what, how would this inform you on uh, in, it, is it? I mean, it's one thing to say, all right, apnea is worse than we thought, let's say, or here's what it really does. But then, then what do you do with that? How do you um, make an intervention to help people more than, than they're being helped right now? Uh, it is to uh, influence the lifestyle in addition to treating the sleep disorder, whether it's by uh, a, a dental device or a CPAP or BiPAP machine uh, and help the body to form more nitrous oxide, uh, nitric oxide, because uh, this is uh, what gets the vessels to vasodilate, uh, helps more with the oxygen delivery to all parts of uh, the body system, especially that it is not a specific uh, organ dependent uh, uh, chemical. It's produced by all cells of the body. Okay. So yeah, I mean, keep going. So what, what, uh, what's the implication of that? The implications of that when you supply more, when you're able to make the body form more nitric oxide, there is more vasodilatation, more delivery of oxygen to every cell in the body, which helps to reverse a lot of the changes that happen with the uh, apnea and hypoxia. So how, about, um, how about in training a little bit of nitrous oxide in the air supply of a CPAP? Would that be beneficial, you think? Uh, I'm not aware of uh, this being implemented or even possible. What I meant is to increase the nitric oxide production by the cells of the body. Well, I know that uh, that's been uh, you know looked at quite a bit for athletes and for a lot of things for high blood pressure. But how would you do that? Or how has science already come? Uh, you know, there's supplements people take, but I don't know if they're effective. I mean, I know the nasal passages produce a bit of nitrous oxide versus the mouth, so. If you're a nose breather, you may be better off than a mouth breather, but how would you get the body to produce more uh, nitrous oxide? Uh, by giving actually the essential substrate in the form of uh, vegetables, things like uh, celery, spinach, uh, lettuce. Uh, there are antioxidants also that help, like using vitamin C, E, as well as uh, glutathione supplements like L-arginine and L-citrulline, as well as exercise itself. Uh, and the interesting thing is the role that um, the oral bacteria and the microbiome play in that. Uh, because giving antibiotics or even using mouthwash on a regular basis 
affect nitric oxide production because you're affecting the assimilation of nitric oxide in the cells from this uh, basic nutrients. So, you know, what kind of correlation has been observed with, uh, you know, frequent mouthwash users or people that have, um, you know, disease like periodontal disease? I'm sure that changes the oral microbiome. Yeah, it has been shown actually that uh, people who have got dental disorders or uh, use antibiotics or antimicrobials or repeated mouthwash or got poor oral hygiene, that the nitric oxide production is less. Especially that when they have sleep apnea or they're using a CPAP machine, they mouth breathe already, so they're affecting their uh, microbiome. They're not like the nasal breathers mm. whereby this is avoided altogether. So have there been studies on uh, mouth breathers versus nose breathers and how does their microbiome, their oral microbiome differ? Uh, the oral microbiome is different definitely between both groups in the sense that uh, uh, the oral microbiome and mouth breathers is unfavorable for the production of optimal amounts of nitric oxide. Actually, what about the, uh, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what happens to the nasal microbiome as you, uh, if you're a mouth breather for a period of time. I mean, I guess you're not a nasal breather because the nose is clogged. So I don't know, maybe it goes from aerobic to anaerobic bacteria preferentially because, you know, there's no air going through there. I just wonder what happens. Have you seen any studies that look at the nasal microbiome? Uh, actually, there are some studies, but uh, the data are not solid uh, there exactly into what type of uh, relationship. But what is clear that there is a difference in that between nasal breathers and mouth breathers. All right. So uh, is your research, again, solely focused on the heart? Or, you know, it sounds like you're aware of a lot of things going on, but, uh, you know, where, what, what specific things are you trying to figure out right now through your, uh, your work? Actually, uh, what I'm trying to do is come up with a program to optimize sleep and cardiovascular health in the sense that, if we can make the regular individual sleep between seven and eight hours a day, that's the proper amount of sleep to optimize not only uh, their cardiovascular health, but the hormones and uh, the basic function uh, of the body. Because when we sleep, there are certain hormones and certain uh, chemicals that go out in our body at a specific at specific times so if we apply the principle of going early to sleep and waking up early combining that with proper lifestyle changes nutrition and exercise i think uh, we're gonna positively impact the individual patient's health not only uh, the sleep disorder the patients but actually the regular uh, apparently disease-free individuals as well. Okay. I mean, for people that, uh, you know, they may be in the bed seven, eight hours, but they're, uh, again, because of apnea, they're, you know, the seven, eight hours are, I mean, completely fragmented. What can they do? I guess just get, you know, get the typical treatments, right? The uh, CPAP or oral appliance and then try to get that seven or eight hours that they need and, and go from there? Or is there a, uh, you know, an order of things that you would suggest to people? Yeah, definitely we got to address the sleep disorder, whether it's sleep apnea, whether it's interrupted sleep, uh, disordered sleep, if it is uh, hypersomnia, if it is idiopathic hypersomnia or because of something else like 
fine living syndrome or what, but uh, after you manage that with the proper follow-up, uh, of course, uh, you would really need to address these other ancillary approaches. Okay. Okay. So what do you think is, uh, is in store for the future of uh, sleep science in the near term, in the next few years? Any big changes coming or just a better understanding, characterization? Yeah, I'm actually uh, pretty um, interested by the um, evolution of home sleep studies. And uh, now you have the newer versions of the machine that transmit data wildly. So it can be used for monitoring as well. Gathering up this data and incorporating it with machine learning protocols uh, might be the way of optimizing one's health in the sense that uh, you're going to reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease and other diseases as well. And uh, using um, uh, digital health uh, applications like uh, chatbots and so, you're able to um, educate the patient um, on demand. Okay. Educate them on demand, I mean, as they're as they're using a CPAP, for instance, or just in the beginning before they get into any intervention, or when do you think would be the best uh, best time? Uh, the best time uh, to use it, of course, uh, during uh, the day, whereby you can um, uh, deliver to them information about uh, the disease, the sleep disorders, how it interacts uh, with the different uh, body systems and organs, approaches for them to improve their sleep hygiene, their eating habits, uh, control of other associated ailments as well, like um, the high blood pressure, the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes that happens there, uh, in addition uh, to uh, associated ailments. I meant something like, uh, as an example, um, uh, GERD or acid reflux is not a straightforward sleep disorder, but definitely if they have that through the night, it's going to affect their sleep, resulting in an interrupted sleep pattern, which throws off their sleep cycle in the sense that they don't have enough of deep sleep, uh, their sleep becomes interrupted. It's more of a REM sleep, which is not sufficient to revitalize and rest the body. So it, it helps us to understand the patient as a whole, not only being restricted to the sleep apnea or the sleep disorders. Okay. okay. Well, very good. So Sharif, what's the best way for people to find out more and to observe your research and, you know, ask questions about it or at least learn where should they go? Um, actually, uh, I'm working on a product. It's a digital health product under the name of Luana. <laughs> Uh, the website name is luana.health. Uh, they can get in touch with me uh, over there uh, to go over what we're doing regarding addressing uh, uh, the whole body uh, health through looking at it through an integrative approach, especially when it comes to sleep, because uh, this is a, a chatbot application that is going to integrate with uh, uh, several um, sleep monitoring uh, uh, methods like uh, the Aura Ring. Uh, and we're going to gather the data uh, there and uh, provide the patient with um, an application that they can use, not only to manage their sleep, but their overall health and prevent the most prevalent and preventable disease, which is cardiovascular disease. Hmm. 
Well, very good. Well, Sharif, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I, it's just amazing all the factors that go into uh, what apnea does and you know, all the things to consider. So it's good that you're looking at uh, these aspects of it. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.